Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that we should be focused primarily on stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting hot. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined on this podcast, as always, by Emma Varva-Lucas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And What Could Go Right is our weekly podcast where we talk to people, sometimes members of The Progress Network, sometimes not, who are taking a more constructive view, a more constructive attitude toward all the destructive things in the world. Yeah, so one of those voices is Maya Salovitz, who we're going to be speaking to today. She's a columnist at the New York Times, where she covers drugs, addiction, and public policy. She's also the author of a few books. The most recent one is Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. And on the topic of addiction, we're going to look today and discuss about how our cultural attitudes about addiction, particularly drug addiction, have changed largely for the better over the past decades in ways that I think are startling and surprising and actually quite hopeful about other change that might happen in our world, things that seem like they will never change, that we are stuck in a destructive rut, can suddenly on a dime shift. But they've often shifted because voices and people have been spending years, if not decades, urging for that shift, working for that shift, creating ideas and new frameworks that say, hey, the way we're doing things doesn't work. We could be doing better. So let's do it. Maya, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, no one would know this except you and I, that we've known each other for many decades since college and have been, I think, both of us thinking about issues about America and drug policy. And the drug thing, I mean, when we were in college and the whatever, whenever that was a while back, it seemed like the last thing in the world, given that this was like the beginning of the war on drugs, that American attitudes about drugs, about things that we called illegal drugs. Let's be clear about that. That it, it seemed like just never in my lifetime would those attitudes soften. Yeah. So my most recent book, Undoing Drugs, is actually about precisely that. Like, how did we go from just say no, lock them all up, addiction is a character flaw, to legal marijuana in, I think, more than half the states now continuing to go. Two states have legal psychedelics for therapeutic use. Harm reduction has been adopted by the Biden administration, if only sporadically. but you know, definitely prior to that, the whole concept of being kind to drug users and keeping them alive if they weren't willing to immediately become abstinent was just, you know, I mean, when just after I was in college with you, I had my own addiction struggles and I was injecting drugs. And this was the mid 80s. And it was the worst time to be injecting drugs in New York city. 50% of people who were doing so were already HIV positive. And I didn't even know once I found out that this was a risk for people who shot drugs, I immediately became outraged that not only did people not want to tell us how to protect ourselves, which was as easy as cleaning your needles with bleach, but they wanted to like actively discourage people from finding this out, let alone give them clean needles because otherwise it would encourage drug use. And, you know, the young kids who would see that we survived would be, you know, badly influenced. And I just thought that's just like a horrible thing. And, you know, I saw that gay people were organizing. ACT UP was a big 
inspiration. And I was just, why don't we have that for people with addiction? And so I, once I managed to, you know, get into recovery myself, I basically began a career in journalism trying to, you know, understand why we have, you know, this ridiculous policy. And one of the fundamental reasons I rapidly learned is racism. And, you know, one of the biggest reasons that we've been able to move away from this has been sort of one gross kind of force, which is, oh gosh, the opioid epidemic is white, so therefore we could be nice to people. And the much more salutary influence is that of Michelle Alexander and her book, The New Jim Crow, which, you know, there was enormous support for the war on drugs in Black communities for a really long time. And she unraveled why that is a bad idea. And that change stopped giving white politicians cover for supporting this very racist policy. And so between that, the marijuana legalization movement and the fact that states that legalized pot did not have the sky fall or, you know, madmen suddenly running in the streets, stabbing people everywhere. In fact, there is more of that goes on in places that have not legalized. But the you know, the fact that, you know, this big bugaboo that everybody was so terrified of and what about the children and pretty much nothing happened, at least in relation to that directly. So, you know, so we've had all of these forces. And yeah, in the 80s and 90s, it was really difficult to imagine. I mean, even talking about decriminalizing possession of marijuana. Oh, no, you're going to send the wrong message. And as well, we've been sending the right message for, you know, God knows how many years now at this point. And what do we have? The worst overdose death crisis in history. Maya, I wonder if you could dig a little bit into what harm reduction is. I didn't even realize that the Biden administration had adopted that as its approach. I'm hoping you could give you know the, the basic explanation. What is it? What is it trying to do? Practically speaking, what does it look like? Harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that we should be focused primarily on stopping people from getting hurt not stopping them from getting hot. In action, the most classic example is syringe exchange. You give people clean needles so they won't get bloodborne diseases and so that when they do get into recovery, which most people do eventually, they will not have life-threatening illnesses that need to be treated very expensively if that is your concern. So there are sort of various levels of acceptance of harm reduction. It could be anything from, you know, legalizing to, you know, because In many cases, prohibition is causing more harm than the substances themselves. And so if you're thinking about this in a harm reduction context, it's, well, if we want to reduce the most harm, these laws are actually increasing harm. So, you know, that, of course, has not been embraced by the Biden administration. But what they have said is that their official drug policy includes harm reduction measures, which are everything from syringe exchange to distributing the overdose antidote naloxone to, you know, having housing where abstinence is not required. Although, interestingly enough, that started in the Bush administration because so much of homelessness, people were never getting housed because you had to jump through all these hoops, you know, yeah, I'll get sober before I get housed. That's really going to happen, right? So, um, you know, I mean, occasionally, obviously, but it has been embraced sort of on a small level within the policies that are officially called harm reduction, but not so much on the level of thinking about what we do. And I mean, a classic example would be something like, okay, we had overprescribing of opioids. A lot of people misunderstand this because they think that the people who got addicted were pain patients. 80% of people who misuse prescription opioids did not have a prescription for them when they started. So these are overwhelmingly not pain patients. And a lot of pain patients are suffering because they can no longer get access to medications that actually help them. But that is another topic. So what did we do when we discovered that, you know, we had this going on? Okay, we'll cut the medical supply. This will solve this. And so we cut the medical supply back down to, by some measures, the rates before OxyContin was introduced. So it's really quite low. And in fact, at that time in the 90s, This was seen quite rightly as people did not have enough access to them when they were dying or had severe chronic pain that was the equivalent of death kind of pains that you were going to have for 30 years, not just, you know, a few months. 
So anyway, so we just cut the medical supply back down to where it was when we widely acknowledged that it was not adequate even before farmer marketing pushed that too far. So, okay, we did this. We did not do a single thing to help all those patients, whether they were pain patients who were getting cut off from, you know, it still had pain, or they were people with addiction who were getting medical opioids, which are much safer than street fentanyl. So we just cut them off and, oh, gee, how did it happen that gangsters came in there? You know, if you have a harm reduction view, you cannot create a policy that does more harm. When you're thinking through policy, you have to think, oh, okay, what's going to happen if we stop this? Oh, yeah, addiction actually exists. So people are going to try to find another source. They're not going to be cured when you just take away one source of the substance. You know, if only that were true, but it is absolutely not, right? You know, that's just an example from recent history. But really, harm reduction requires thinking of policy in context. And so, for example, another one would be, we have this herb called kratom or kratom. Nobody really knows how to pronounce it. But I've asked him many times and nobody really, people just pronounce it how they want. But anyway, um, this stuff is essentially a very mild opioid. And it's available as a supplement because we don't regulate supplements very well. But, you know, so there was this whole, oh, gosh, this is an opioid. You know, we should ban this. It's bad. Well, in the context of fentanyl, you want to ban an opioid that most that is incredibly hard to overdose on? That would be really stupid. And in fact, so far... And for the first time in recent memorable history, the, you know, the FDA wanted to ban it and they didn't. They weren't able to because people said this is a really stupid idea. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I guess the flip side of my my optimism about changing attitudes toward marijuana and legalization, changing attitudes towards the therapeutic use of psychedelics is, you know, it's almost as if if, if you look at the past hundred years of, of policy toward various subs, mind-altering substances, let's just call them that, it's almost as if American society kind of needs a drug demonization of choice at any given moment. So you have the end of prohibition in 19, you know, you have prohibition in the 20s, demon alcohol, destroying families, ruining stuff. And then you have uh, the repeal of prohibition and suddenly marijuana becomes like the, you know, reefer madness and it's the thing that's going to destroy families and on and on and on. And then really in the past 10 to 15 years, almost in weirdly inverse lockstep with relaxed attitude towards marijuana and psychedelics, you have this intense reaction against all opioids. To the point where, you know, if you watch Dope Sick on, I think it was Hulu, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Empire of Pain, you know, the Sacklers are depicted as these sort of, you know, maniacal. I, I, mean, may, I mean, maybe they were, right? I, mean, it's, I, I don't even know. I just in here because, you know, the New York Times, I think last week or recently had another piece about the evil Sacklers funding something. All of this focus, you know, yes, they are bad. They did bad things. but 
if you continue to focus on the medical supply, when we have street fentanyl killing at least 100,000 people per year, this is really stupid. What you're going to do by further cutting the medical supply is further increase the market for street fentanyl. And, you know, Dope Sick promoted, unfortunately, a lot of ridiculous myths about the addictiveness of opioids. For example, there's that ridiculous scene where the, I, the doctor, somebody's, you know, he's about to have surgery. He's like, oh, no, I can't have opioids because, like, I will turn into a zombie. Dude, you're not at risk. First of all, the one thing that people never think about is, okay, let's say you get opioids in the hospital. You don't even have a prescription. Most people are not comfortable buying street drugs if they haven't previously done so. Even if you have previously done so, especially to not get ripped off, <laughs> it is hard to do. You don't get supplied with a drug dealer when you get opioids in the hospital. And, you know, the idea that the, you know, the thing that is also really annoying. So, okay, all of the opioid companies in Purdue, they said, oh, you know, only 1% of people who get exposed medically get addicted. That is actually true with one caveat, if they don't have a prior history of addiction of any type. And so, you know, most addictions, 90% of addictions begin before the age of 25. So if you're talking about a 40-year-old woman with MS who has zero history of addiction, the chances that you're going to give her a prescription and she's going to start robbing pharmacies are enormously low. But we can't have this subtlety in our policies, right? Um, and I do think, yes, we have this history of, you know, we have one demon drug after another. That is definitely a thing. But we also go through periods where there really isn't. I mean, methamphetamine sort of was a drug scare, but it really didn't affect that many people. And perhaps more importantly, for not creating a drug scare, it's really rare in New York City, except for among gay men. And so, you know, we're a coke town. But the thing is that, you know, we also have plenty of other areas to create moral panics, unfortunately, which we are seeing around trans people right now. And so while we definitely tend to go from one's drug scare to another, which of course is really great in like, okay, I won't do that drug that, you know, my older sister nearly died from. I'll do this one instead because this one is not demonized yet. And, you know, it's just a stupid way to do policy. Demon, demon drugs and moral panics aside, do you think that there is a increasing acceptance around addiction issues? I mean, I was thinking about this because John Mulaney, who of course is a celebrity, you know, he's a stand-up comic, but his whole Netflix special that just came out was an hour and 50 minutes on him going through addiction, which to your point started apparently at age 14. When I first got to rehab, one of my biggest fears was that everyone was going to recognize me. Gradually, a new fear took over. I'm not, I'm not, like, exaggerating to be funny. No one... <laughs> no one knew who I was, and it was driving me bananas. Please don't repeat this. It was in the newspaper that I was in rehab, and I left it out. <laughs> I was like, hey, oh my God, the paper's here. Get in here, you addicts. Oh my God. That's, oh, I wonder what's inside. It's hard to imagine, like, and again, he's a celebrity. He's sort of held to different standards, but it's hard to imagine that happening 10 years ago. I mean, I am sort of of the era when, you know, people going, celebrities going to rehab was like, oh my God. Well, no, I disagree. Like everybody got to rehab. It was like, it was sort of, it became, I think it began to become destigmatized in the 80s when the peak of this probably would have been early 90s when New York Magazine ran a story about why you should go to, why single women should go to AA to pick up men. <laughs> I'm really glad I, I missed that. <laughs> right. So, you know, and I mean, this is when the movie The Player came out and like people who didn't have problems are going to AA because that's where the deals were being made. 
So there was this whole like recovery thing, like the destigmatization of recovery has really come a long way, I think. What has not been destigmatized is the continuing active use. And so the what also has not been destigmatized, unfortunately, is anything other than 12-step treatment. And we still have this idea that is the one true way and that if you don't recover that way, you're not really in recovery. And if you use medication, you're not really in recovery. And so, you know, I do think that, you know, also, is there a rock star that hasn't gone to rehab? I naively, when I was trying to organize around, um, you know, trying to get people to do something around AIDS and IV drug use, I'm like, okay, every guitarist, probably every bass player and drummer too, singers, whatever, they all shoot off. So why wouldn't they do a benefit for needle exchange? This seems like a good thing to, you know, but of course, you, you know, they didn't want that to be their image, even though they sang songs like heroin or cocaine by, you know, heroin by Clapton and cocaine by Blue Ray. No, I've got them backwards. The point being that they did plenty that glamorized drugs during their careers. And the idea that now they would only support, you know, people who are already abstinent or people who like are willing to go and attempt to be abstinent. Okay, so we're going to let them get AIDS when they relapse or before they are able to get into treatment. You know, this is ridiculous. But I was obviously very naive about the commercial pressures on musicians and how actually rock and roll they are. And it's funny you mentioned this because there's also this whole strain of reality that doesn't enter into the mix at all because it's frankly more banal. So we talk about, you know, addiction and people whose lives fall apart. My friend Anne Marlowe, I think in the 90s, wrote this book, you know, Heroin A to Z, about it was a memoir about her as a very successful, high powered headhunter who yeah. also had an active, continuous heroin habit. And this was not like a defense of her having a heroin habit any more than, you know, books about people drinking as a defense of being an alcoholic. It was an articulation of you can actually be a high functioning drug user, right? That it's not like one shot of anything. You know, most people who use drugs are not addicted. Even when you're talking about something like heroin, probably 30% of users become addicted at max. You know, typically the range is 10 to 20% for alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin. It's a little bit less for weed. It's a little bit more for nicotine in the form of cigarettes. And, you know, it's almost non-existent for the classic psychedelics. So, you know, a lot of the drug war was about teaching people lies, creating this idea that, oh, we can't tell people that only 10 to 20, because that's a high rate of addiction, actually. But, you know, would you fly in a plane that crashes 20% of the time? You know, but we couldn't tell people, oh, no, that 80% don't. Oh, no, we can't be talking about that. And also, I think actually when we're talking about what brought about the change in drug policy, a undermentioned thing is the internet. Because when the internet first started, it was populated by deadheads, computer geeks, people who liked drugs, basically. And there was honest information about the risks and benefits that was on there, like it took many years before the prohibitionists caught up with the pro-legalization message that was throughout the early internet. And I think I had an art, I think I had a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine because somebody wrote, oh my God, people are getting their drug information from these, you know, like strange sites. They should be going to the honest government sites. And it's really it's like the, you know, marijuana turns you into a heroin addict instantly. You know, I mean, to be fair, the government sites have become much better. And if you were actually looking in the medical literature, you would find much more honest stuff. But, you know, honest information on drugs from the DEA and the drugs are. So I'm curious where we are actually in terms of the medical literature on addiction. So I imagine that has also improved or just changed? I know it used to be addiction was considered to be a brain disease. Is that still where we're at? Or what does current research say? Disease is a cultural term. It's not a medical term. So, you know, people, what used to be argued, in my view, dumbly, was addiction is a disease because drugs change the brain. Okay, so learning is a disease, right? Because 
you know, learning changes the brain, right? Walking is, it's just, it's a dumb argument. Everything that has an impact or sensory experience changes the brain. Otherwise you couldn't experience it unless you're talking about the soul, which we don't want, really want to be doing in a scientific context, right? So the thing about the problem with seeing addiction as a brain disease are, there's twofold problem. One is, this has become extremely associated with the 12-step view that abstinence is the only acceptable way to treat it. It has, you know, they 12-step groups and people who sort of believe in that ideology say, you know, it's a chronic progressive brain disease. But the thing is, if you actually look at the literature and most of the findings in the addiction literature are really old, they're just now mm. way more replicated. If you looked at the medical literature compared to what the popular press was saying at any given time, there was much more sense because like when you actually have to do an experiment, you're going to have, you know, unless you're a dishonest scientist, you're going to have to deal with what the actual results are rather than, okay, well, this will fit into my propaganda. So I'll publish this and I'll put this in the file drawer, which I actually think there's a lot of file drawer literature on the harms of marijuana that failed to pan out. And also people don't like to publish null results anyway. But the... You know, the point there is that, yes, the medical understanding has expanded. And part of this is because it really was a backwater for many years. And really, the only people who wanted anything to do with it were like doctors and researchers who were in recovery or, you know, some kind of drug users themselves. So, you know, the American Society for Addiction Medicine, which thankfully has really changed a lot, but it was originally founded by diehard 12-steppers who opposed the use of medication, even though probably 20 years ago, we already knew that for opioid addiction, the only thing that reduces the death rate is staying on methadone or buprenorphine. Now, buprenorphine is newer, but methadone's been known for years. 50% reduction in mortality with staying on these drugs. So advocating abstinence in light of that, in my view, is malpractice. Now, again, this does not mean that Individual patients should not aim for abstinence if that's what they want to do, especially since obtaining these drugs, especially methadone from our horrible system, is a horrible pain in the butt. You often have to go every day. Your counselor can say, oh, no, you can't go on that business trip. I mean, it's just it's really bad. And there are people working to change this. But the data has really been there for a really long time. It's now like pretty well replicated in terms of how do we see addiction? Like I have obviously written a book that argues for seeing it as a learning disorder or developmental disorder. And I think what was interesting when I was writing the book was like some neuroscientists were like, oh, everybody knows that. Like, why would you write about that? I'm like, everybody does not know this. <laughs> in concept in the field is disease. And the main concept in the field is disease that turns you into a zombie, like where you have no free will and that you are, you know, having basically something like Alzheimer's. But when you look at how people with addiction actually behave, that is just not what happens. Like people don't shoot up in the middle of the street if they have any other option. <laughs> they don't shoot up in front of the cops if they have any other option, you know, which means that they can delay use, which means that they're not zombies in the sense of have mm. zero free will. So the learning disorder perspective, first of all, it accounts for the fact that, gee, it typically comes on at a time that's a sensitive period in brain development, like virtually all other psychiatric conditions, right? Like I think 75% of all mental illness manifests before 25. So there's a sensitive period in brain development that's going on when you're a teenager. And that's when these things often manifest. Other conditions like autism, you can see earlier, but the, you know, there is, there's stuff that's going on in the adolescent brain that can go wrong. Thankfully for most people does not, but the, you know, so that's, the other thing that really deals a fatal blow to the chronic progressive brain disease, first of all, most people recover. But second of all, the rate of recovery is about 15% per year, kind of regardless. And so like a lot of treatment centers will show, oh, we got an 80% success rate. Basically what they do is they're really horrible to people. 80% of people drop out in the first two weeks. They have their 80% success rate among graduates, which is 15%, which is the natural rate of recovery. So they select <laughs> out for the unmotivated folks. Anyway, that is another, I could teach an entire course on how to lie with statistics with addiction treatment data. Yeah. I mean, and the studies are really 
they're problematic in terms of their data sets, they're problematic in terms of their methodology, they're almost impossible in terms of their control groups. I mean, mostly because you can't take a thousand 15-year-olds, you know, have 200 of them do heroin regularly, 200 of them do a placebo <laughs> that they think is heroin, and, you know, 600 do nothing, and then study their lives for the next 20 years. I mean, that if you really wanted to understand the potential and also somehow normalize for diet and environment and, and two-parent, one-parent, all these other environmental factors. But we make these assumptions, some of which are, are I guess, legitimately correlative. I mean, early studies of the lethality of nicotine were based largely on, you know, correlative stuff. Not, just huge, not, massive correlation. Right. Um, but you also had a much larger set of humans. I mean, if 200 people did heroin, you'd probably come out with an understanding of what the actual risks were. What's interesting is we have a pretty good natural experiment on that, which is Vietnam. The American soldiers who went there, around 50% used heroin or opium to the point where they were actually physically dependent. And so Nixon, everybody was panicking. These people are going to come home and they're going to like spread heroin addiction all over the place and it's going to be a nightmare. What happened when they came home was actually... Only about 15% tried it again once they were home, and only about 1% to 2% actually developed long-term addiction, which is pretty similar to the population rate for opioid addiction in general. So, you know, we can say that, like, yeah, they were in a pretty stressful situation over there. They were taken out of that stressful situation. Now, there is also some people that will have switched to alcohol or other substances, but the main point is that most people who have access to a pretty decent life do not become addicted to opioids. And the people who do become addicted to opioids overwhelmingly have histories of childhood trauma and or mental illness um, or other developmental differences like autism or whatever. It's not like people who are happy and good at coping get exposed to a substance and then you know, throw away their lives. That maybe happens very rarely, but for the most part, what happens is people discover something that fixes something in them and eventually it stops working and causes a lot of harm. But the, you know, at first it seems like, ah, oh, I've solved this problem. And so if you don't have that problem to solve, and you do have alternative things that make your life worth living, you're probably not going to, you know, and, and you, I hear this all the time from people who are like, oh, yeah, I had, you know, somebody gave me Oxycontin because I broke my leg or whatever. And that was the best thing ever. And I knew that I better not mess with that because I did not want to lose my job or my wife or my cat, you know. So, you know, those are the stories you never hear because they're really boring. Who would ha who would buy an addiction memoir that was that? Well, who we hear from are the people you get into trouble who are the minority. You had a, a staggering statistic in one of your recent columns in The Times that had to do with what you just said, which is that nearly 75% of women with a heroin addiction were sexually abused as children. I was blown away by that. Where are we, I guess, when it comes to the therapy conversation? Because I have this sort of pop therapy idea that we've come a long way right? That it's more available, that people have better access to it, that it's just more an, an open part of the conversation. Would you agree with that? Well, the problem is that historically addiction treatment itself has been traumatic. If you weren't on methadone, the main method of treatment was the therapeutic community. This arose out of a cult called Synanon. The idea was A isn't tough enough. So, you know, A wants you to admit you're powerless over the substance. We'll make you feel powerless by, you know, A wants you to get humility. We'll humiliate you. It was attack therapy. And this is still, unfortunately, prevalent in a lot of places. And it is horrible for, especially for women who are survivors of sexual abuse. And so the whole idea was we break you down because you look too much of a big ego and you are too arrogant. Yeah, okay, maybe that was fine for the white people who originally, like the white men who <laughs> originated this stuff. But, you know, the vast majority of people with addiction are not like that and are not like on top of things and need to be brought down. In fact, you know, if you just think about it from common sense, who's more likely to recover? A doctor who has a practice and a wife and a kid and a cat and a dog and whatever, or the homeless guy on the street? I'm going to bet on the doctor, right? But to be fair, there have definitely been advances in treatment, and there's this whole movement now to make treatment trauma-informed, 
Now, you can't do that if you are attacking and humiliating people because that is trauma producing. Some people, of course, just pick up the buzzword and they don't change what they're doing. But, you know, there certainly is a much greater awareness of the role of trauma in addiction. And one of the things about that 75% figure, which also was horrifying to me, was that half of that group was abused more than once. It was like an ongoing thing. It wasn't just like a one-off incident. So it was like a life, you know, I mean, and I can't remember if I used this there, but there was a sort of poetic term for the childhoods of most people with heroin addiction, not in my case, but in many, called shattered childhood. Like they basically had just everything was ruinous. And, you know, if you look at those like adverse childhood experiences studies, you find, I think it's something like eight times greater risk of becoming an injection drug user if you have five or more childhood, different types of child traumatic experience compared to if you have none. And most people have at least one. But even having one actually doubles your odds of addiction. And so, you know, so it's, I mean, it's a lot of the times too, like people have both trauma and mental illness because oftentimes what turns a predisposition to mental illness into an actual illness is the trauma, especially at a young age. So what we're trying to do and hopefully moving away from is like punishing people for trying to feel better and trying to feel okay. And that produces more desire to use drugs, not less, because you're taking away the thing that the people use to cope and not giving them other skills. So Maya, you've been doing this column for the New York Times for more than a year now. In a world of noise, the Times remains still a more prominent platform that gets more attention. I mean, I notice this when I've done stuff for them that it, you know, it doesn't have the impact that it might have once had culturally, but it still has a lot more than most. What are you noticing in terms of feedback? You know, it's a more, there's obviously some degree of validation of, of the arguments you've been making. I'm not saying the Times necessarily like in, in its columnist endorses the views thereof, but there is a willingness to, feel like this is a resonant viewpoint. Are you finding that in terms of your reactions? Has that changed some of your sense of where the culture is? I mean, yeah, the fact that I was able to, you know, become a contributing opinion writer there definitely shows more openness to the, these perspectives. And so that has been obviously really great for me. I always wanted to do this. It's, I'm having a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, like the, first of all, people call you back really quickly. <laughs> that's nice but aside from that um yeah you get i mean i get enormous amounts of feedback i think you know mostly positive okay you know if you write about 12 step and don't say it's the best thing or the only thing you're going to get majorly attacked and that did happen around that particular column i am not anti-12 step but i do not think we should be forcing people into it so but yeah like it's been really interesting to see you know how views that were definitely out of the mainstream even 10, 15 years ago, are beginning to be accepted, especially since we've seen the failure of the punitive approach. I mean, it's do we really think locking more people up for fentanyl is going to fix this? I mean, fentanyl's like you could supply an entire city with an amount that's this big. So for those listening and not watching, you're showing a small amount with your hands. Yeah. So you're never going to prevent that by supply side. And who are you going to bust? You're going to bust the lower level people because they're easier to bust. And who are those people? They're going to be people who are addicted themselves. We're just going to continue mass incarceration by doing that. So that was a digression. But it's been really great doing this. And I, I just want to do it for as long as I can and just get as much, you know, accurate and informed information, you know, out there to people because they're just a whole area is just filled with ridiculous myths. Well, I've certainly been enjoying the columns, and I'm very pleased that you have that platform. I mean, everything you've been writing for the past decades has been, I find, brave and in a culture. I mean, the culture has moved more in your direction, right? So you've, you've been where you are, where you've been much more like the outsider saying, hey, hey, wait a minute, and you know, in ways that I think are quite validating, right? Things have moved. And part of the point that we did the Progress Network and we do this podcast is cultural shifts happen very slowly until they happen very quickly. And the way in which they do is, is the idea universe is seeded like pebbles in a pond, right? You know, the ripples are going somewhere. You just don't know when they're going to hit the hither shore and what effect they're going to have. And 
you know, you have been one of a series of voices, Michael Pollan, some others who have clearly germinated seeds of change that have now blossomed. And that's really impressive. And I think you could do a little self backpatting occasionally for that. So keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we will keep listening to what you say. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Maya. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. (laughs) Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. We covered a lot of ground there in a pretty short period of time. We didn't get to some of the pushback, which you know people might have listening to this. But I do find... Maya's comms to be extremely educational, especially when she says there are a lot of myths out there that need to be rewritten. That's how I've certainly found my like limited educational experience paying attention to this conversation, that most of the things, most of the pop knowledge that I had in my head about addiction are, don't turn out to be correct. And what works when it comes to addiction don't turn out to be correct. Sorry, I, th- I think not doing a lot of the pushback in that conversation is fine especially because the pushback remains the dominant discussion anyway. That those stories and those realities are so palpably part of our collective awareness about the use of drugs. And look, part of the problem, which Maya does very well to draw attention to, is the line between scheduled substances, illegal and prescribed, in terms of their pharmacology or in terms of their intensity is a completely arbitrary one. You know, the human body doesn't know from fentanyl to uh, Oxycontin to heroin to pot to psychedelics whether these substances are legal or illegal. It knows what the body is responding to as a substance. And there's a whole panoply of of quote-unquote drugs that, that are prescription-based and legal, not including opioids, that are intensely powerful and can be intensely destructive, but they can also be intensely constructive. You know, most of these things were created for a purpose that was good, not a purpose that was bad. Um, Most of the things that we call scheduled substances, human beings started doing because of a very natural and cross-cultural need to escape or a need to transcend consciousness or a need to have fun, you know, you name it. Every every culture for time of human beings have been altering minds forever. Uh, and are likely to continue to do so. So I'm, for one, very sort of surprised and delighted that the conversation has become more nuanced, has become broader, has has changed the knee-jerk black and white simplicity that our culture has dealt with. I guess the opioids is a bit of a, that's pretty black and white the way we deal with it right now. But I think these are good, these are good changes in our society, good in that we are developing a greater maturity and sophistication about how we look at these things and weigh the risks and weigh the benefits and weigh how we manage both. Yeah, and I do see like in the long run that you could take some of the things that we're wrestling with right now that we feel are going nowhere. And it's not so ridiculous given this conversation that we just had about drugs that 50 years from now, we would be in a completely different place. Right, you can do that like politically. Oh, nothing will ever change politically or Mm -hmm. nothing will ever change in American democracy, the way the structures of American democracy work or nothing will change about 
attitudes about climate, things change and they change dramatically and they change substantially. It's just, it's sometimes not clear when and only when you're on the other side of that inflection point are you able to go, oh, right, that changed. But they look like they're sclerotic. They look like they're set in stone forever until everything shifts. All right, shall we talk about the news? Yes, let's do it. We're going to start with a fairly controversial topic, uh, depending on who you ask in the United States, which is guns. There are pretty large swaths of the American public that agree on several different kinds of gun measures. So kind of the voter approval is there, but obviously from a legislative sense, things are a lot more difficult. So just starting with Team Blue right now, um, if you're on Team Blue, this will be exciting for you. If you're not on Team Blue, uh, you can skip the next 30 seconds of this podcast. Washington just became the latest state to ban assault rifles um, and set a semi-automatic weapons. It does need to withstand a court challenge, so we'll see what happens around that. The ban that Illinois passed earlier in the year is right now in limbo in the courts, although they think that the, the ban will be upheld. And uh, Colorado, uh, which was once purple, now bluish, also just passed four new gun measures, which have to do with introducing a waiting period that have to do with expanding red flag laws. So if you aren't Team Blue and you're really big on bans, mandates, legislation as a whole, there are some things that, that have been done very recently that you can feel happy about. Here's to the, the Team Blue side. I, and that may even be putting it in too stark a terms. There's a lot of people who are, who are staunchly in favor of Second Amendment gun ownership rights who feel that semi-automatic weapons, or at least unfettered access to semi-automatic weapons is questionable at best. You're right. I shouldn't really say Team Blue or Team Red. I'm sort of doing it for ease, but maybe for Team Red, Team Purple, part of Team Blue. Um, something interesting just happened, which is that smart guns are now on sale in the U.S. for the first time ever. Tonight, we take a look at a gun company with the goal of making firearms safer. They're developing what they're calling the personalized gun, a firearm designed to only be fired by an authenticated user, in this case, using his or her own fingerprint. But will smart gun technology be able to reduce the rising level of gun-related deaths in this country? This has been around as a concept since the early millennium, since the Clinton administration. They asked gun manufacturers to try to develop them. Uh, there was so, so much blowback from gun owners and the NRA that the big gun manufacturers just dropped the idea, partly because of that and partly because they just couldn't get them to work. And what happened is that a 15-year-old who was from Colorado, he uh, lived half an hour away from the Aurora shooting that happened a while ago now. He was really perturbed by that. He started a company called Biofire to develop these smart guns. He's now 26 years old, so it's a decade-plus-long project, and they're just now for sale. And if we can trust, you know, some reporters at NPR and Bloomberg and other outlets, they actually work. And, of course, the benefit of smart guns being that if a child picks it up, they can't fire it. If someone steals a gun from you, they can't fire it. It's only going to be for an authorized user of that gun. So... It remains to be seen now if people buy them. Traditionally, uh, we have thought of the problem of gun violence in a pretty narrow way, simply as a criminal matter uh, to deal with exclusively through our criminal justice system. By thinking of it as a public health problem, it really expands the way that you can think about potential solutions. After guns, something definitely less controversial. Uh, and a, a little bit of an antidote to some of the nostalgia that people feel about, oh, the times used to be much better. We used to have quite a few serial killers out on the loose in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in the hundreds, actually, active serial killers. Um, and now if you look at the, the new data that, that's come out, we are back to like 1930s, 1940s levels, something like 30 active serial killers. So we've had seen substantial drops. And that has to do with better policing, better tech, um, better surveillance, all these things. So it's weird because it seems to come with a accompanying rise of anxiety with parents. Like they feel nervous about leaving their kids around these days. But at least when it comes to abductions and killers, we're actually in a much better place than we used to be 50 years ago. Man, that's going to be a real problem for... Uh... You know, streaming services and Hollywood, which has made such a <laughs> rich source material of show after show and movie after movie about, you know, hunting the serial killer, finding the serial killer, getting in the mind of the serial killer. 
if, if there's no longer an adequate source of serial killers, you're going to have to find a whole other source to inspire your shows. So, I mean, that that's the one, I guess, downside of the absence of, uh, of serial killers. And for those who may not be able to identify my sarcasm, that, that was an <laughs> example of it. Well, the good news for, for Netflix and so on is that they can always just go back into the 70s. There are plenty. Right. There are plenty. <laughs> That's right. They can just, so. just do the historical version thereof. Do we have anything else this week other than the decline of serial killers and the rise of smart guns? I don't know. Yes. Let's touch on India really briefly. Um, people may or might not know that the India's population officially surpassed China's. People might be wondering, why do we care? Well, we care because um, Morgan Stanley is forecasting that India's economy is going to become the third largest in the world by 2027 meaning India is going to become a major player. Inside all of that is also the fact that life has been getting a lot better for people in India. They have had internet access skyrocket, electricity access skyrocket. They have this cool system from the government that 99.9% of all adult Indians have a digital ID, which means they can send financial transfers from the government, direct payments without dealing with corruption or skimming. They can set up a bank account really easily, which anyone living in Greece will know that that's something to be jealous about. Anyone, anyone living in the United States. I mean, it's, you know, we still have uh, lots of documentation. You, you got to go in person. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do here. It's hard to do everywhere. As uh, Progress Network member Fareed Zakaria pointed out in his columns this week, I was also in India in March. You, you really do feel like there's a certain cliched wind at the sails feeling. And while some of the trends you talked about, economic growth forecasts, have been pretty robust for 25 years, and India has failed to sort of keep pace with its promise. Mm. That's probably the best way to put it. Bringing everyone into the digital sphere, essentially, isn't just about the ease of like financial transactions. It's also developers can develop tools. It's, a more, it's more of like a, an open source platform. On the one hand, provides for high levels of privacy, but also high levels of public good. If we talked about China as the X factor in the global economic and political system, let's say from 2000 till now, uh, we may be well talking about India from here until whenever then is. So we'll see pretty soon, I think. And that's, uh, that's all we have for today. So thank you, Zachary. Thank you, Emma. And we will be back next week. Thank you all for listening. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Plugglomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.